Nothing in creation is left to chance. What we call chance is really the result of our ignorance and our non-willingness to pursue the question of finding out and getting to the bottom of something that appears to be um, the result of chance when in fact it is not. We're just too lazy to bother to ask the question and make inquiry especially self-inquiry because that's where the answers are going to be found and that's why yoga is so pertinent to the path of self-inquiry because only by going within are we going to get the correct answer but we do have to ask the right question and we do have to initiate the process of asking a question even if it's the wrong question and I think this is what is well Regardless of what has happened, I want to be the first one or to stick my neck out and presume something hypothetical to satisfy this notion of mine that nothing is to chance. And it concerns Michael J. Fox. You would think I have no right to do this, but I care about him. And not, I don't pity him. I'm angry that still he suffers. It pisses me off because here is a shining light dimmed by something that he doesn't comprehend nor understand. Now, it makes no difference what I'm about to say, whether it's true or false. What matters to me is that I'm sticking my neck out and taking the initiative... This is crucial, taking the initiative to hypothesize something, merely to satisfy the initial criteria that nothing is left to chance in this universe of ours. Nothing. There is no such thing as random behavior. I learned this a long time ago when I was 19, when I had subtle vision, psychic vision, of the light bodies, the astral body of plants, and I made note of the fact that they dance. This is not random motion that they do. But it's their light body, not their physical body, because they don't have enough strength to bring that anthropomorphic quality that we call dance, or self-expression through dance, all the way to the physical level. They just sit there, and they're blown by the wind if, at the best. <laughs> or they break down and, and crash on top of a house if they're a heavy tree limb. Be that as it may. So, here it is. I'm going to speculate... First of all, I've already solved the dilemma of how to manage epilepsy, Parkinson's, MS, um, ALS, all of those neurological illnesses that we classify into a broad category, just with the help of one particular genus of seaweed called laminaria. It grows in various places. Uh, there's... Uh, whole flock of it growing off of the California coast, up and down the, the western United States. It grows in the gulf between Japan and China, known as kombu. It um, comes in various species, but the genus is the one that can manage these neurological illnesses without necessarily curing them. But reduce the symptoms down to the point that you can go on with your life and not notice that you have a disease 
that exhibits any symptoms because there are no symptoms to notice for a temporary length of time until such time as you need to take another dose of laminaria seaweed, genus of seaweeds. Now, no other genus will do. It has to be laminaria. Laminaria is not so popular in the health food stores anymore like it used to be decades ago when I was growing up. Now, instead, what you find is the genus Ascophyllum uh, species Nocidum because it actually does have value, but in a different way. It has arachidonic acid, which cats need. Normally, they get it only from red meat, but you can get it from this particular type of seaweed that grows off the coast of Nova Scotia. But that's not the topic, that's not the subset of my discussion herein. That's a sidebar to let you know what is not the case, what is not what I am promoting. So, firstly, a seaweed laminaria genus that reduces the symptoms down to nil of non-noticeability for a temporary length of time. Could be a few days, a couple weeks, until you need another dose again to set you straight. Now, that takes care of the physical side. Now, I began to question in my mind, where did I get this, um, these symptoms that I have that would prompt me to consider my options when I did, about 25 years ago, as to how to go about trying to mitigate these symptoms that I was having that I will describe shortly with the help of some supplement or another. The symptoms was this. I would have my cheek muscle or a finger. A che- a, a, it would tick. It's called a tick, a nervous, like a nervous tick, but it's, it's not really nervousness. It's just the muscle twitches. It's a twitch. It's my, in my case, it was like a cheek, a facial cheek, or a finger would wiggle back and forth, and sometimes maybe a, a muscle in the leg. And I, re- I thought to myself, as it was getting worse, I thought to myself, okay, I don't know what caused this, but what can I do to alleviate it? And I thought it through, and I thought, you know what, it's probably seaweed will take care of it. And the only seaweed I had was laminaria, because Ascophyllum nosidum had not become popular yet. This was a quarter of a century ago. And I ended up reasoning correctly, because no sooner than I took laminaria, the symptoms went away, until they came back again several days or whatever, a few weeks later, and then I would take the laminaria and put off the symptoms from reoccurring again for several more days or a couple of weeks. <clears throat> so, that was 25 years ago, and I've been living with this solution, workaround solution to finding a cure, for this long, and now it pisses me off that it might be applicable to Michael J. Fox's situation, and he doesn't know about it, and most people wouldn't either. My mother died of Lou Gehrig's disease. I didn't think of it for her, because she died before... I started having these symptoms before I applied my attention span on making self-inquiry to try to figure out what to do about it and come up with a solution that works in a kind of temporary way. It helped me get on with my life from day to day and ignore the fact that I might have a neurological condition of deterioration. Well, just now, I thought to myself, all right, well, what started it? What happened 25 years ago that started it? Well, it's the same thing. I already know the answer. It already... The same thing that's, that caused my mother to come down with Lou Gehrig's disease. It's called Cresote Bush in its natural form. And it 
I don't know whether or not its derivative in um, in human industry is a natural derivative or an artificial derivative of the petroleum uh, industry because they make a lot of chemicals from petroleum um, that are artificially made that are not natural so I don't know that part and I and I question I wonder if that's the basis of the problem because Cresote Bush is on the one hand touted among herbalists as a cure for cancer as a treatment modality for cancer on the other hand its derivative or its artificial replacement analog from the petroleum industry I don't know which is utilized on such places as the surfaces it's painted onto the surfaces of telephone poles to seal the wood to prevent the deterioration of the wood. But the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has mandated that this is a poison. It's a known poison, toxic to human and animal life, and can only be allowed in outdoor settings where it is allowed to outgas, and not allowed to outgas into enclosed settings in which the airspace can accumulate the toxin vapors and cause problems when people inhale it and then they start having problems with their physiology misbehaving. Now I can't remember the symptoms of the toxicology of Cresote bush, bush poisoning but be that as it may <clears throat> I'm positing the possibility because when my after my mother died I took over her master bedroom in her home to sleep in and I started and with the windows closed everything shut I started noticing that my liver was shutting down. Now, my liver is very sensitive because I don't have a fully developed liver at birth. My mother was an alcoholic, fasting on a raw food vegan diet at the time uh, for 10 years prior to my birth. And my brother was a head shorter than his cousin Michael, who was only three weeks difference in age. Uh, my, My family was a family of alcoholics who were placed on a raw food vegan diet by our father who believed this was the thing to do, but he didn't have the money to buy fresh produce. He bought everything in bulk and let it ferment in the garage. And Mom would make tons of grape juice, fermented wine with carrot juice, as our main source of carbohydrates. So we were a family of alcoholics, and we didn't even know it. And to this day, nobody in my family will come clean except me, because I figured out all the pieces of the details. Be that as it may, uh, I did get born, eventually... <laughs> It took a second pregnancy to do it and a switch of diet, but be that as it may, I got born. And so now I'm analyzing this problem. So I moved into my mother's bedroom and I pulled up the rug the next morning after I realized my liver had shut down partly. And I pulled up the cushion, you know, there's a cushion underneath a rug. I pulled that up to expose the bare wood and I realized it had been treated and it was facing up. And then I went online to look for possible causes because I didn't have the money to take a sample to a lab and have it tested. And Cresota Bush seemed to be the, the most likely possibility. So this is speculation on my part. But it's very likely because only one side of plywood floorboards are treated. The other side is left bare, untreated. And when construction... when, when con, um, members of the construction industry utilize it for floorboards when they place it across the beams of the floor they're supposed to to face the treated face 
downward into the crawl space beneath the home. They are not supposed to face it upwards, such as what happened in my mother's bedroom case. Now, that was the only room in the house that was exposed. All the other rooms that had been added on by way of extension by the prior owner who hired their brother-in-law to do the remodeling, that all of that was covered with parquet, with uh, tile, linoleum. This was the only room in the house that was bare, covered by rug, allowing the outgas process to slowly filter through the rugging and, and and the cushion underneath the rug to expose my mom. Now, the first diagnosis she had before Lou Gehrig's disease was not Lou Gehrig's disease. It was toxic poisoning from man-made chemicals, and that's right on the button. But there's no treatment modality for that in conventional medicine. There is if you look, but it's not conventional. It's called detoxification of the body, and there are very specific techniques that uh, trained individuals can take the person through to detox. One of them is a complete fast. That's no easy deal. I did that as a teenager. In any case, so she went for a second opinion, and Lou Gehrig's disease was a second opinion. Uh, it didn't help her live any longer. Uh, she died within five years, which is the standard statistical norm for people of her age group in her, late, in her 60s to 70s who are diagnosed at that point in their life. The progress of the illness is very quick and severe and usually kills off the individual uh, due to complications from the illness in about five years' time, and that's how long she, she had to live after the diagnosis was about five years, and she died. Now, <clears throat> so I can postulate a hypothesis at this point to finish this line of reasoning before I go to the next line of reasoning in this discussion that there were... Um, plywood boards all over the movie sets and the TV sets, TV series set that Michael J. Fox hung around. I mean, he, he spent a lot of time on the movie set, more than anybody else on the crew or the director. Anybody. He's the only one who spent as 20, what was it? 21 hours a day or less, something less than 21 hours a day on a movie side of a movie set of one type or another. Either it was uh, what was it? Um, uh, family Ties, was it, that he was on in the daytime? And then at night he was doing Back to the Future. He was the only one who got that much exposure. And I'll guess, I'll, I'll venture to guess, that some nitwit painted the wrong side of those plywood boards. Not the side treated with this Cresori bush, natural or artificial derivative, but the other side. So that he would get, oh, for free, both side, a painting only one side, both sides treated and sealed. I'll bet you they're stupid enough to do that. I'll bet you, or were, <laughs> at the time or in that particular instance. I'll go out on a limb and say it. I'll attack whoever, you know, was responsible and say that that's my guess of how he got the poison. But my discussion cannot stop there because I know that Mother Nature puts a twist here, and it has to do with karma. And this is the subject matter of the title of my discussion, Nothing is Left to Chance. So now I fulfill that title subsequent to this point in time. Up to this point, I'm just setting you up 
for the fulfillment. But now I, I'm going to actually fulfill. So I take a little time, you know, to set things up because I want to paint the picture. I want to give you a full, robust view of how I see things, okay? Because this is the way I see things. In order to analyze anything scientifically and, and analytically, you have to know and take into consideration all details, no matter hypo how hypothetical they may be, because it's the conclusion that you seek. And I haven't gotten to it yet, okay? So you have to bear with me here. It's the conclusion that matters. Everything else is just a hypothetical step in that direction. And it's up to Michael J. Fox and to no one else but him to back-engineer from my conclusion what the actual facts are in his case. But he has to want to. He may not. He may not hear this. He may die of the illness and never find out until he's on the other side and has his soul judge his life. And say, hey, guess what, you know? Vinny over here, Vinyasi, uh, tried to help you and you either didn't want to listen to it or you thought poo-poo or you did listen to it or whatever. You couldn't make sense out of it. But at least he tried. It, and, and that's all I can say is I want to help and this is the only way I know how. Even though it sounds like I'm attacking people, I'm still is the only way I can do this. All right? So, nothing's left to chance. So, what Mother Nature demands of some people more than others is that we are not allowed to blame someone for something and never forgive them and hold on to that resentment with such a grip that Mother Nature at some point says, look, it's been long enough. I have given you a beautiful, abundant life. You have made all these movies, Michael J. Fox. You have made all this money. You have a beautiful wife, beautiful daughters. You have a beautiful family. Why do you hold on to this grudge? Why do you hate this man so much? <clears throat> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm breaking down into tears at this point. Because I know what it's like, personally, not to forgive someone and be poisoned thereby for karmic reasons. Because this is how Mother Nature addresses someone who poisons their, poisons their mind and their environment with hatred and revenge and resentment in which they never forgive. They just hold it in their heart and they, and they keep going on and the poisonings get worse and you end up a cripple. And I've, I've already had antifreeze poisoning 20 years ago, as if the Cresote bush was not enough. Shortly thereafter, I was poisoned with antifreeze because I held this gripe in my heart and I could not release myself from it. And I don't know if I have yet. I may still have it, and I'm in denial. But be that as it may, we're trying to address Michael here, but I can only do so because... My situation is analogous, and so I'm making a, quite a stretch here to presume to know what Michael is going through, that it is in any way similar to what I'm going through. But I'm only trying to help. So here we go. Let's keep going with this. we got a little momentum going. So, who does he hate? Charlie Lutz. The prior incarnation of Charlie Lutz. Because Charlie never did anything to him in this lifetime other than be involved in the TM movement, which my mom <laughs> doesn't forgive Charlie for my um, devotion to Charlie. She's so jealous of him that I should care for Charlie. 
and it has poisoned her life and given her hell. And uh, hell is going to take her, it looks like it's going to take her a few lifetimes to go through before she mucks her way out of it. Be that as it may, her own private hell. I don't want Michael to suffer anymore because I care about the man because it pisses... Okay, I covered that already. So, what could have happened, hypothetically, in Charlie Lute's past life that Michael J. Fox could have held on to all this time and still not forgiven him for? Maybe, you know, Michael met Charlie or heard about him. Maybe he started TM and heard about Charlie as being prominent in the movement in the past. And that provoked his contact with his feelings. That he does, he can't explain why he has these feelings about Charlie. I don't know. I have to guess, though, that that's the case. I have to guess that it's something he doesn't want to talk about because it doesn't make any sense to him, basically. And I'm trying to give flesh to the mystery so that it's not so mysterious by creating all of these hypotheses. Okay, so just keep going with me here, if you dare to. <laughs> If you haven't uh, turned off the off button yet. Um, my guess is, because there's a scene in Back to the Future Part 3 that I think tells the story, the connection with Charlie Lutz. <clears throat> it's prefaced by Doc Emmett Brown, Christopher Lloyd's character, telling um, Michael J. Fox's character, Marty McFly, that you're going to drive off into the distance in this DeLorean at 88 miles per hour, and this is in 1955, so this is the Doc Emmett Brown of 1955 telling um, the Marty McFly that has traveled back in time from 1985 into 1955. Um, Do I have that right? Uh, Yeah, 1985. From 1985 to 1955, that you're going to drive off into the distance here in this empty, um, what do they call it, Um, drive-in theaters, abandoned drive-in theaters, and at 88, and then when you reach that uh, wall back there, you're going to, you know, you're going, that wall won't be there, but uh, because Michael J. Uh, J. Fox's character says, "But if I ke- I do that, I'm going to d- drive into the Indians name, they, that are painted on the wall there, on the back wall of the drive-in theater." Oh no 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 no! You have to think uh, fourth dimensionally. You ha- you're going to be in the you're going to ha- travel back through time at that point because you will have reached 88 miles per hour, and so it uh, won't be a problem. Needless to say, he drives 88. He goes to the wall. He translates into the into the past in 1885, I guess it is. And there's a flock of Indians running towards him, followed by the cavalry. And he's running from both. And when he gets his car um, safely tucked into a cave, he realizes that one of the Indians' arrows went through and punctured, I think, the gas tank. And so he lost all his gasoline, dribbling onto the ground inside the cave and outside the cave. And I think that's the telling feature. Because I remember reading a long time ago, I was in one of the libraries of UCLA. I'll say the Paola Library, because I don't think it was the re- the uh, research library, the main library. I think it was the Paola Library, but be that as it may, wherever it was, it was one of the libraries. I loved to hang out there. And that was a book on General George Armstrong Custer. 
his life and times and accomplishments and grave human er uh well it, it's it would be too much to presume to judge but he felt he was justified in making an example and you know Lincoln did the same thing he felt it was justified to go through and not honor amnesty for an individual that um, he felt committed a crime he had to set an example for all the other soldiers and for the morale of the army and go through and execute the guy and uh, the guy's relatives pleaded with Lincoln no please don't do it and he went through it anyway and he said hey if I make an exception here I, then everybody will be flocking for exceptions I can't do that well Custer did something similar I think he executed one or a few members of his cavalry for insubordination of one type or another and I suspect one of those individuals was the prior incarnation of Michael J. Fox and I think this is where his illness originates from the fact that Mother Nature has compensated him with the last wish he had while he was executed was to you know if he had been wealthy he never would have had to serve in the cavalry right so now he's wealthy and he doesn't have to serve in the military not for any reason whatsoever and he has an abundant life unfortunately he still has the pain the memory of the pain and the choice not to forgive and so in my bid to try to help him I have created this hypothetical fleshing out of a skeleton whose structural integrity of the skeleton may be true but you know that nothing is left to chance but whose flesh adorning that skeleton is totally hypothetical and may be entirely a miscreation of my imagination and that's really all it is is a creation of my imagination whether it's a miscreation or not be that as it may, I want to help because I care too much to, to keep my mouth shut or to, for that matter, prior to, to making this recording, to not pursue this line of inquiry, to pose these questions to myself and come up with hypothetical answers to justify what I feel is essentially the problem is the lack of forgiveness. And... I'll tell you what happened. I was driving along the freeway when I was making this self-inquiry, coming back from a job of delivering someone. I had had a nap because I was very tired. I woke up from the nap and I came back to my home location. And while I'm on the freeway driving at high speed, this trash truck to my immediate right lane in front of me at a diagonal, I asked the question, so is it true that it's to myself? I posed it out loud. I spoke the words. Is it Charlie Lutz? You know, like my mother, is it Charlie Lutz that, that Michael J. Fox has failed to um, forgive for some past injustice that Charlie Lutz did to him in a past life? And the minute I said that word, that phrase, Charlie Lutz, a piece of cardboard flattened cardboard box flew out of the top side of that trash truck into the lane to my right and I thought that's it thank you that's it it's true so for me from my point of view nothing I have said at this time in this recording is 
my a fabrication of my imagination or a hypothesis. I have to say that because that disclaimer because it's going to be appear that way to everyone else who is listening to this. But from my point of view, it is anything but a hypothesis. It is the facts as I see them. And I'm sorry to say it because it, it pains me to say it. And I don't like facing it because I have the same problem. I have the same problem. And I'm going to describe it to you. Back in the day, when Charlie in his past life as Henry VIII, the second Plantagenet of King of England, was good friends with Thomas Alva Beckett, who he made Archbishop of Canterbury, who was me, and Charlie was Henry. And my mother in this lifetime was Eleanor of Aquitaine. It's quite a triangle, I have to say. And in one of the movies concerning that period in history, there are two movies and of note, and Peter O'Toole starred in both of them, playing... Um, Let's see if I have this correct. Um, let's see. There was the one after Thomas's death. That one was between Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn called Lion in Winter. And the one prior to that, ah yes, was Peter O'Toole playing the role of Henry VIII, but it was called Beckett. The name of that movie is called Beckett, and it starred alongside Peter O'Toole, um, the husband of Elizabeth Taylor, Taylor, what was that guy's name? Richard Burton. Richard Burton played the part of Thomas Beckett. And what Beckett did was, you know, they were good friends before Henry became King Henry. And they were the best of buddies because lifetime after lifetime, that's what we have been. And this is why my mother is so jealous. And in the movie, the one with um, Richard Burton and uh, Peter O'Toole prior to Beckett's death, um, prior to Va Va um, Richard Burton's character being executed, um, the lady playing um, Queen Eleanor, the script has her say the line to Peter O'Toole's character, Henry, King Henry nothing will amount nothing much will amount from that man and she was referring to Thomas Beckett <clears throat> that's exactly what my stepfather said to my brother and it caused my brother to leave LA and go to Berkeley in San Francisco to be as far away as possible and told me when I visited him when I was 15 to do the same thing to leave the house to leave the house get away because it's not a healthy environment for you my younger brother I didn't take his advice <laughs> but that's what he told me the exact same words that that lady in the script is ha, is scripted to say to Peter O'Toole's character concerning Thomas Beckett now once Henry made Beckett Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury the purpose of course was to make the church totally Anglican and under the authority of Henry. 
and to separate from the Pope in the Vatican. Unfortunately, Thomas Beckett chose otherwise. Once he became Archbishop, he got a totally different notion in his brain. I don't know how it got infected, but there it was. To go against Henry, his best friend, since early childhood. God, they were buddies since early childhood. And instead side with the Pope and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I take the side of the Pope. And Henry was pissed like crazy. Now, Henry had, unfortunately, episodes when he would go through epileptic seizures. He would literally foam at the mouth, fall on the ground, foam at the mouth, go through the seizures, the whole nine yards. And I'm just giving you background. I don't... I'm not sure that happened at the time that he uttered these words under his breath, but he said, I wish somebody in this, um, in my country or in my court would have the guts to do away with this problem. It so happened that the sergeant-at-arms was nearby and heard Henry say these words, and he went with his associates, I guess a small band of three or four soldiers, and they went to Thomas Beckett, and he was doing, it was during Vespers, and he had his back to the doorway, and they have this perfectly lined up in the movie. Uh, Richard Burton has his back to the doorway. He's going through Vespers. And he hears them and he knows what's going to happen because um, he, he fled England because he knew what Henry was going to do. And Henry begged for him to come back out of their friendship. And finally he did. But he told him, if I come back, you know, it's at the risk of you doing what you claimed you were going to do. You're going to kill me. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. No, no, I got over it. Well, he said it under his breath, and the sergeant in arms made the mistake of thinking it was a command. And I met the person in their, pri pri in their current incarnation who was that sergeant of arms. She was a girl giving an introductory lecture on Kabbalah. And I'm telling you, I hated that. My... All of this feeling of hatred welled up inside of me. So I'm, I'm saying this for your benefit, Michael J. Fox, because this is probably what you went through when you heard, first heard, or learned about Charlie Lutz. All this hatred welled up in me, and I couldn't stand that person. I, I had to get out. I didn't want to have anything to do with Kabbalah after that intro lecture. And immediately afterwards, the next Friday night lecture, I went to see Charlie, and he, and he said, there's some people you will never get over hating them, and you don't know why. And it's because of some past lifetime, they did something to you, and you don't forgive them. Well, <clears throat> this is what she did to me. She lanced me in my left kidney. And I had the recall of the, the pain being put there. That's where I was lanced but with her uh, spear when she was a guy in that lifetime, when he was um, a sergeant of arms, and to Henry... And Henry was so forlorn over this stupid mistake because he, he didn't intend it to happen. He was just muttering under his breath. So he did penance of all types to the Pope in, in the Vatican. And before you know it, the, the church in England <laughs> ended up doing the opposite of what Henry had originally intended, all because of Thomas's death. All because of that stupid death. Now, I would guess, estimate, that Charlie went through those epileptic seizures for a very good reason, not by chance. It was because he supplied the body. He was Jesus who supplied the body for Christ to enter into for three years to administer, perform his ministry, and then leave the body 
prior to Charlie being there up on the cross uttering the words Ali Ali Sabachthani in Aramaic Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Because Charlie didn't have the good karma to be in the body at the same time Christ was in the body when Christ was in the body. And that's why because of due to his prior lifetime as Alexander of Macedonia and I was good friends of his again I was Hephaestion, his good friend and lover and he failed to stop at Judea to spend the rest of his lifetime solidifying his empire. Both of us came down with and died uh, because of overextending our march all the way to India, which wasn't necessary. Maharishi came out of India. He didn't need to go to India to open up the road to India and, and make his empire all the way to India. All he had to do was make, go all the way to Judea in hindsight. You know I'm saying this. But he didn't know that because he was crazy with the idea that his father, the general, would be a bigger big shot than he. And who do you think his father, the general, was? Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, my mother. So there's been this thing going on between them for God knows, you know, how long. And, you know, Charlie has made his peace, but my mom hasn't. Not. Anyway. So instead of solidifying his empire, it crumbled. And so instead of the, the, the Greek culture being the vehicle for carrying Christ's message to the West, the, the Etruscan culture had to evolve into the Roman culture, and it became the Roman culture's duty and mantle to carry Christ's message into the West. Now, the, the Romans are pretty brutal. We know this. And the Greeks, at least, you know, they loved young boys. It was a little different. Uh, the Athenian and then the Spartans were very highly self-disciplined. Oh, <laughs> I can tell you stories about Charlie and I in that lifetime in Sparta, but be that as it may, I was in both. I was in Sparta and I was in Athens. I had a taste of both. Be that as it may, um, he because of that failure, he never failed to help me. Because it needed to be Greek culture to help me now in this lifetime and now I'm at a loss I don't fit in I stick out like a sore thumb I can't satisfy myself I can't satisfy anyone and I'm labeled schizophrenic because I don't fit in that's the only reason why I have that stigma is because I don't fit in and upon losing my son I took it upon myself to do what I don't need to do to pay back society what my brother thought I owe society <clears throat> so I solved the question of free energy and you don't have to believe me you don't have to understand me but I solved it and I understand it in, from its theoretical basis I have yet to build anything to exemplify that, that understanding but it's not a belief anymore it's an understanding I can argue anybody till it becomes a draw like tic-tac-toe because no one can win an argument with me it's impossible but that doesn't mean I'll convince anyone but I do understand the topic. So I've paid back society. I've done what I need to do to pay back whatever anybody thinks I'm guilty of in bringing my son into this world and wanting to raise him like myself, a protester. <laughs> and I won't get into it, what protest in, I, I was doing at the time. <clears throat> but be that as it may, um, now I took a tangent. What, what was the tangent? Um... 
So I have... Oh, Macedonia, right. So I, I'm dealing with this as the best I can. And I have yet to really fully forgive Charlie's mistake. I know this. And it's hard for me to admit it. That I would have any grudge against him. We, we've been good friends so many lifetimes. Unfortunately, it's still there. And when I told him this one evening, he got pissed as hell. He pointed his finger out in the air, not at me, and said, in this lifetime, you're supposed to become spiritual, which, which means enlightened. You know, maybe not the same stature as him, obviously, but meaning, get over it, dude. You know, it's in the past. Get over it, basically, is what he was saying in, in a different kind of way, though, because he was pissed. <laughs> Because um, he was asking me how I'm doing, you know, and, and I told him, we were having a private conversation, nobody else was there, I won't tell you where we were, <laughs> but <clears throat> I was invited by way of intuition to go there, and there he was, and um, and he asked me, how you doing, you know, how's your meditation, whatever, how you doing, and I said, you know, I have this feeling that at times that I'm fighting myself, and that's when he blew up, because what he was saying, what I was saying was, I'm fighting him. Because I spent a good 20 years growing up in his shadow, in the shadow of him and his wife, Helen. Because they lived on the other side of Sunset Boulevard in Bel Air, and we lived on the south side of Sunset Boulevard in Brentwood. They were just north of UCLA, and we were just to the west. So a little on a diagonal. And I didn't know that until the very end when they moved to Arizona. That's when I found out that they had been there when my mom moved us in there in 1970, or actually the summer of 69, which, by the way, is during um, the gestation period of my father's reincarnation as Ethan Hawke. He was born, I think, in 1970. Be that as it may, that's another sidebar. Um, so, <clears throat> I grew up in that shadow and not knowing that he was there. And I coped, you know, the best way I could. And um, I noticed that people who don't cope very well, they just blow up in each other's faces, you know. They just can't handle the vibratory rate that's so intense when they're living in the company of those two people. Because it's remarkable. They, they, they're, the value of their two nervous systems, when I first... Uh, learned about them, you know, living in Studio City after they had moved out of Bel Air was remarkable. It, it was equivalent to hundreds of meditators gathered together meditating simultaneously in one place at the same time. It was so powerful. It was so remarkable. It was, uh, it was undeniable. I would wake up from a nap at the Rye uh, Park near their home, the Rye Street Park or Rye Avenue. I think it's Rye Street in Studio City and literally thought I had woke, woken up into heaven it literally felt like I had awakened into heaven because of the heavenly presence that Helen Lutz was projecting meanwhile Charlie was project, projecting a kind of energy that was quite stimulating and enlivening while she projected a massive blanket of peace it was so palpable 
it, you, you could feel it. It was so God authentic. I mean, I literally thought I was in heaven. It, it, it was so remarkable between the two of them. Between the two of them, the yang and the yin of heaven. It, it's it's really remarkable. Anyway. So I think this is the problem because I'm speaking from my own experience. This is the problem I have, this is the problem my mother has, and I suspect this is the problem that Michael J. Fox has, is the failure to forgive Charlie because it's time to do so. It's way past time to do so. And our suffering is indicative of that condition that, I, that I'm stating. It's long since past time to forgive. I know. It's easier said than done. Oh boy. <laughs> it's easier said than done. Now I might point out another, another, a little sidebar that has no merit whatsoever, but uh, to finish off the, the topic of Beckett. Beckett is the source, or the motivation I should say, for the Grimm's fairy tales. Brothers Grimm's collected their tales because they went around to the various inns you know, the, the bars, the saloons of the day, the inns, that were collecting travelers arriving there to pay their respects to Beckett, who was lying in wake in the Archbishop, or excuse me, in the Canterbury Cathedral, to pay their respects, a long line of pilgrims who made it all the way to there to pay their, 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 la, their respects, last rites to Beckett. And so... All these tales, they went around these inns collecting these tales, and that's the, the basis for the Grimm's fair, brothers' fairy tales. Was they asked them, you know, what tales do you have to, to, to share with us? And whatever they shared became part of their book. So, I, I'm the reason for that. Or else it never would have gotten written and collected and written. Nice. Something good came out of my death. <laughs> Besides the Anglicization of the English church. No, excuse me, no, the uh, pontification, excuse me, the pontification of the Anglican Church in that era. I can't speak for other eras. I don't know English history that well. But in that era of the eras in and around surrounding King Henry II, Plantagenet of England, and I can tell you horror stories of what Eleanor, Queen of England, went through before she became Queen of England. But I, I'll let you read up on her yourself and find out for yourself. It's quite horrific. It's it's quite a remarkable woman, <laughs> what she went through and and whatnot, uh, and that's my mother in this lifetime, and that's my good friend, buddy, alcoholic buddy in his current lifetime. Be it, be that as it may, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I said too much. <laughs> I've said way too much. I should never have said that. Sorry. Um. <clears throat> anyway, I think that covers everything. Thank you, Michael J. Fox, for giving me this opportunity to say these words. I, I, I don't know how else to, to, to end this recording, but to give you gratitude um, for whatever it's worth. I mean no ill will because I'm in my own bed of karma that I made, and now I'm, I'm sleeping in it, so to speak, of my own making. We all have our karmas that we've created, and we have to deal with it one way or another and transcend it or not live it out maybe maybe that's the best we can do and die and come back another and, and, and somebody else will pick up where we left off because we don't get to come back 
our perspective comes back, but not us, not the uh, persona that we all, you know, know each other by. Namely, our mind, our personality, our body, you know, our voice, our mannerisms, our likes and dislikes. All of that is nice, but it's our perspective our, that it is carried from one lifespan to the next. And that's what the soul accumulates, is a perspective garnered from all of the life association with the various creatures, human creatures that it associates with from one lifetime to the next. That's really all I can say that carries over to the next life is our perspective. And the next bloke or bloquette, as the case may be, will inherit the accumulation of all of those life experiences and whatnot. But um, we die. And that's the sad fact of the matter. Whether we are enlightened or not, we die. Um, unless uh, we reach enlightenment before the age of 35 and then have the option to choose to be immortal. Um, and some have not died, but some have chosen to die to take on other people's karma. And there are numerous people who have done that. Um, because that's the only way for them to die. <laughs> Epimenides is one. Um the person, the guru of Paramahansa Yogananda, Yukateswar, is another. Socrates is, an, is another. Um, there are several in history, saints who died, elected to die to take on somebody else's karma. Tatwala Baba. All of these saints. Anyway. Um, so I guess I've said enough. Maybe even a little too much. But there you go.